All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to our second class session on Ender's Game. Um, I've been uh, I've been really enjoying uh, doing these classes and preparing for these classes. Uh, I have been delighted to find you know I, I usually find when I teach books that um, you know I always see them in a whole new way when I'm uh, both when I'm you know actually doing class and when I'm preparing for class and uh, it's always a really fun experience. Um, but it doesn't it, it doesn't always work out the same way you know that is i i don't always find that every book that i try to that i do you know that i teach you know really sort of stands up to scrutiny in the same way um but i have found this book to be really uh, uh to be really a, a revelation to me um i enjoyed it a lot before i really liked it uh, when I had read it previously, and I'd read it several times previously, um, but I have been—I've really gained a, a new respect for this book uh, over the last couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to uh, uh, to tonight, and then to carrying on for the next few weeks. Uh, before we get started tonight, and I have uh, a sort of ridiculously ambitious. Uh, plan for tonight's class. Um, especially those of you who have experience with my Mythgard classes, I'm not even going to tell you how many slides I have tonight because you'd laugh. you just laugh straight at me. Um, but anyway, um, but before we uh, get into it, I do want to just mention, um, for those of you who are voters in the Mythgard Academy, that is everyone who uh, contributed so generously to our fundraising campaign in the fall or has contributed since then, um, we uh, uh, we're, we're getting ready to fire up our next round of voting to decide what book we're going to do after Ender's Game, and in fact, um, we're going to um, uh, we're going to uh, be electing the next two books um, because I don't want to have to we, we don't wanna have to turn around so quickly. We want to be able to plan a little bit further in advance. So we're going to do the next two books, and we'll see. Uh, uh, so we'll we'll see what those are. I'm going to be very interested as always to see what uh, people come up with but the nominating process has begun uh, so if you're on the Council of the Wise uh, who are nominating uh, books uh, I, I encourage you to make sure you be a part of that discussion and if you are a voter get ready because uh, the vote uh, will be coming pretty soon so uh, so anyway that will be that will be fun to see and I'll keep you guys posted uh, on how that's coming all right. Um, Carissa's asking me if there are more than 10 slides. Ha ha, Carissa. Yes, there are indeed. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see how I do. Ready? Ready? Let's go. Okay. I wanted to start tonight with the Giant's Drink. That's where we ended last time and where I said I wanted to begin this time, and that's exactly what we're going to do. Um, so keep in mind, um, <clears throat> well, let's just look at it here. Okay. I think I'll bite your head off, said the giant, as he always did. This time, instead of running away or standing there, Ender walked his figure up to the giant's face and kicked him in the chin. Uh, by the way, do you remember what shape Ender's uh, 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 character, his persona, in the game is at this point? Anyone remember? Little quiz. Yes, Sean, very good. And Daniel, it's a mouse. And Gerald, all three of you got it right away. His, his figure is a mouse. Remember that. Okay. Uh, the giant stuck out his tongue, and Ender fell to the ground. "'How about a guessing game?' asked the giant. So it didn't make any difference. The giant only played the guessing game. Stupid computer. Millions of possible scenarios in its memory, and the giant could only play one stupid game. The giant, as always, set two huge shot glasses as tall as Ender's knees on the table in front of him. As always, the two were filled with different liquids. The computer was good enough that the liquids had never repeated, not that he could remember.' 
that this time one had a thick, creamy-looking liquid, the other hissed and foamed. "'One is poison, and one is not,' said the giant. "'Guess right, and I'll take you into fairyland.' Guessing, guessing meant sticking his head into one of the glasses to drink. He never guessed right. Sometimes his head was dissolved. Sometimes he caught on fire. Sometimes he fell in and drowned. Sometimes he fell out, turned green, and rotted away. It was always ghastly, and the giant always laughed. Um, okay. What do we notice about this? Now, we, we can already see... We see relatively quickly, especially in the be- in the beginning of the chapter, right after this, in the beginning of chapter seven, um, when Graf and that other voice are sort of talking over this incident, the significance that this appears to have to Graf, right? This is the this is the problem to which there is no solution, right? And Graf seems quite pleased that Ender has come up with a way uh, to solve this problem, which was not supposed to have any resolution, um, but. What do we notice here? What, what we see being described here, right? This is a rigid system. It's the thing that Ender is really focused on. That the computer seems to be completely inflexible at this part of the game. He keeps trying to find a way. His going up and kicking the, the giant in the chin is his way to try to change things up, right? He's not trying to, to solve the giant's riddle. He's trying to circumvent it. Like, let's try to get the, try to get the, uh, the giant to do something different. Um... But he he won't. He can't. He doesn't. Uh, there's there's no way out of this system. And it seems pretty clear. Um, I don't think we're explicitly told, but it's at least heavily implied that there is no right choice. Both of the drinks will kill you. So here he is. It's it's a scenario that always goes the same way. There are variations, right? It doesn't always look exactly the same. The liquids are different, but still, uh, in the at the end, the result is the same. Um, and he, and there's no way out of it. You can't abide by the rules and win. Now we're told later on that the mind game, as it's called, this fantasy game, in the computer is designed to teach him things, right? The computer is trying to show him stuff. Um, so what's it trying to show him? What's the message here? What does he take from this? Kobayashi Maru for children, says Ed. Yes, yes. Several of you have made, have made reference to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pretty much. Um, but but watch. And, and again, as we look at this, what I want you to be thinking is, what is the computer teaching him here? Okay? You can go ahead and type your answer to that question as we look through this passage. And instead of pushing his face into one of the liquids, he kicked one over, then the other, and dodged the giant's huge hands as the giant shouted, Cheater! Cheater! He jumped at the giant's face, clambered up his lip and nose, and began to dig in the giant's eye. The stuff came away like cottage cheese, and as the giant screamed, Ender's figure burrowed into the eye, climbed right in, burrowed in and in. The giant fell over backward. The view shifted as he fell, and when the giant came to rest on the ground, they were, there were intricate lacy trees all around. A bat flew up and landed on the dead giant's nose. Ender brought his figure up out of the giant's eye. "'How did you get here?' the bat asked. "'Nobody ever comes here.' Ender could not answer, of course, so he reached down, took a handful of the giant's eye stuff, and offered it to the bat. The bat took it and flew off, shouting as it went, "'Welcome to Fairyland!' He had made it. He ought to explore. He ought to climb down from the giant's face and see what he had finally achieved. Instead, he signed off, put his desk in his locker, stripped off his clothes, and pulled his blanket over him. 
He hadn't meant to kill the giant. This was supposed to be a game. Not a choice between his own grisly death and an even worse murder. I'm a murderer even when I play. Peter would be proud of me. All right. What do you notice? What is the computer trying to teach him here? First of all, one thing that I would draw our attention to here is Ender believes that this is just a game, right? Um, this was supposed to be a game, he says. Not a choice between his own grisly death and an even worse murder. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> that's exactly what it was. Um, it's not just a game. This is, a, this is a series of choices that he is being confronted with. He's being taught. He's being trained. And he hasn't seemed to realize that, right? So that's one thing that we can see, is that Ender is still, in this way, naive, right? He hasn't figured out the fact that this thing, which appears to be a game, which he believes to be a game, is not, in fact, a game. Hmm. Now that will probably come in, come out, uh, turn out to be relevant later on in the book, I suspect. Um, but let me look at some of your answers here. What What is the message? What is the computer trying to teach him here? Um, good. Several. Uh, uh, Sean says. Uh, Sean Hyde says uh, to to change the rules, to cheat, to use violence. Yes, all three of those things which are none of them exactly identical, right? That's not to say the same thing, three different ways. They're three different things, though they're certainly all related. Um, yeah, Sharon, I like how Sharon Hoff says it. Uh, not to, do not accept the given parameters, right? That's what he was doing before. Um, you know, the, 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 he was presented with the two drinks and told to pick one, told the rules of the game, which were not necessarily true, right? Told what the rules of the game were, uh, and he had to pick one. He can only win by, by rebelling, essentially, against the game, um, by not conforming with the system that, is, that has been established for him. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, and it, Sean, I, yes, I, 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 as I was reading, I was trying not to be too infected by that, but Sean Hyde points out is that the, 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 in the audiobook dramatization, the one that Orson Scott Card says he likes so much, uh, the bat sounds exactly like the Count from Sesame Street. Uh, it's exactly that kind of uh, uh, fake... Muppet Transylvanian voice. Sean, I found that really striking too, actually. Um, good. Carissa says that uh, in, a, in a different way, the computer is teaching him to accept his limitations and to exceed them, to find the solution. There's always a solution, even if no one else can see it. Yes, exactly. And even if that solution might require you not just to step outside the parameters of the game that's established before you, but even larger parameters, right? I mean, remember the reaction that that other guy who is unnamed in the conversation with Colonel Graff uh, in the beginning of the next chapter, and he's appalled, right? Going in through the eye like that. He's like, man, like, you know, he, he's, he clearly questions Ender, right? Is this the guy we want in charge of our fleets, he says? Um, he's crossed the line in doing that. Well, yeah, right? Um, we see those two things seem to go hand in hand. Is he willing to cross that line? Remember, that's very similar to the situation that Inspector Graf... Inspector Graf? Where did that come from? Where Colonel Graf um, uh, placed him when he took the monitor off. The business with Stilson. Remember his mom? Ender's mom? Right? Um, When she hears that 
Uh, in fact, Colonel Graf is, is all over-pleased that Ender put Stilson in the hospital, right? And she's like, what, he passed that way? I thought he was in trouble, right? And she, she's like, so, so, so by, by, you know, beating Stilson mostly to death, he, uh, he, that this is what you were hoping for? This is what passing the test meant to you, right? She's kind of appalled, just like the other voice, you know, the, the Graf's interlocutor there in the beginning of chapter seven is kind of appalled by this also. But again, notice in both cases, um, Ender breaks the rules, right? Remember, that's he explicitly thinks of it in those terms when he's kicking Stilson while Stilson is on the ground. This is something that is not done, right? You don't do that. It, it's a, it's, it, is a, it is a known taboo uh, in adult human culture that you don't kick somebody who is helpless on the ground. And he deliberately crosses that line in order to change the game. Right, in order to break the pattern that he can, you know, gets, and he sees, like the giant's drink, right? Here he is with Stilson and his gang saying, okay, if I fight back, um, you know, if, if I don't fight back, I'm, I'm, I'm screwed, right? They're just going to come and beat me up again tomorrow. If I do fight back, they're going to come and take vengeance on me, right? And I'm going to be screwed again. So the only way that I can get out of this is by changing the rules. And thinking outside the parameters that are given to me here. And that also means, by definition in that situation, means not just, again, breaking rules of a game, breaking parameters, but crossing a serious taboo boundary, right? Um, and he does that in both cases. I think we can see there's, 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 there's a lot of um, um, pretty close parallels, I think, between those situations. And I think that we can see other things uh, there, too. Um, yeah, good. Oh, a bunch of comments, and I wish I had time to read all of them. Um, yeah, as James Heikinen uh, uh, says, uh, to win even if unorthodox methods are required. Yes, yes. Um, unorthodox, and that would be a gentle way to say it. Even unethical, I would go ahead and add. Um, again, even crossing those kinds of lines, those kinds of ethical, those, those, those kinds of moral lines, um, that seems to be... And again... Graf was was fine with it, not just fine with that. He was happy with it for the reasons that Ender did it. Right? He. That's what he had to find out. Why did you do it? And he seemed to be what Graf seemed to be wanting to know is, did you just do that because you like hurting people? Did you just do that because in some way, like psychologically, you you got off on kicking Stilson when he was down? Right? Um, if so, then you're like Peter, and we don't want you because Peter is messed up. Right? Remember, they rejected Peter for exactly this reason. Peter was smart enough, uh, but he was too twisted. Right? Uh, apparently, that's why he was too, too violent. They didn't want him. Um, he wanted to know if Ender was like that, but he was very pleased that Ender was willing to do what had to be done. Uh, and, you know, in, in the last class, I talked about the parallel between the choice that Ender makes in the Stilson situation and the choice that humanity as a whole, or perhaps you could say the IF in particular, is making vis-a-vis the buggers, right? Let us do a preemptive retaliatory strike um, that is in retaliation for the strikes that came before, preemptive of all the strikes that might come after. And uh, let's just... Uh, let's just destroy it, right? Um, and, and again, so that, how, how similar that is to what, to what Ender's doing. So again, Graf approves of that rationale, just, just as Graf approves of him tunneling his way through the giant's eye and killing it. Um, 
the significance of the eye, though, um, I mean, he, he, he gets to Fairyland, but he, he literally comes to see Fairyland through the giant's eyes, right? And there's a way in which that pun seems to me important, emphasized in my mind by the fact that he takes the, like the, a chunk of eyeball, right, and offers it to the bat to eat, which presumably he does. Um, he's like, hey, want some giant eyeball? Um, that idea of consuming the eye, you know, that, that there's, you know, that he's not just killing the giant there. There's a way in which he seems to be in this really literalized, physicalized way within the computer game, entering into the perception of the giant. I mean, it's like literally what's happening, right? He's tunneling into his eyeball. He's entering into his perceptions. Is therefore going to fairyland in this sense, is it tied in some way to his um, sort of seeing things from the giant's point of view in a sense? Um, I don't know. Well, I would... I would go one step further here, actually, thinking about the... Sort of backing up one step and thinking about the giant. Um, I'm tempted to... Or rather, let me say that a different way. Um, seems to me there's a certain amount of evidence which would support associating the giant with with Colonel Graff, with sort of the officers or teachers in general. Um, think about how that works. On the one hand, you've got the size difference, or sort of an exaggerated size difference. You've got all these little children and the grown-ups. Um, and so, you know, the little mouse figure and the giant, it, it's an exaggerated... Um, version of the size difference between the children and the adults, but we can see sort of the germ of it there. Also, notice that that, that that also connects to the relationship that I was talking about last time between the individual and the collective, you know, and humanity as a whole, right? You've got the one little small thing, person and the whole sort of weight of the human race on the other side. Um, but anyway... Just as so, the giant comes in and 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 always does things his way, right? You can't change his game, and he's in charge of it, and he sets the options, and the challenges that the giant puts in front of you are loaded, right? Think about the two options that the kids face at battle school: either they fail, either get, you know they they fail and either die or get iced, or they become tools, right? Um, this is a situation where the individual student can't win and remain who he is, right? He's either going to be shaped and formed into the soldier they're trying to make of him, or he's going to fail to do that. And so it's like, either way, it doesn't matter which cup you drink from, right? Um, when you're playing the Giants game, you're sort of stuck in that. So you, I, I think it's possible to say, and again, it, it seems to me... Um, the thing that primarily suggests this is the, is the rather conspicuous moment where this is um, presented, where we get him stuck at the giant's drink, where we see him coming back and back and back again and again to the giant's drink. Um, and it's not just a question of, does he have a death wish? He does seem to have a death thing, as of course becomes much more explicitly clear at the end of the world, which we'll get to in a minute. But, um, but I think this... You'll remember this happens at the moment of transition between his time with the Launchies and his time in Salamander Army when he first gets assigned to Salamander Army. Um, so during this time, we're seeing him being manipulated, where the emphasis... You'll notice as we go through his time in battle school, the teachers kind of 
are more and more backstage. We see the effects of what they do. We will see down the road them manipulating the games against Ender more and more. We've heard uh, Graf talking to Anderson about that at the beginning of when I think it was Chapter 8. Um, uh, sort of setting up what's going to happen down the road, but we haven't seen that happening very much yet. Um, but in those in that early stage, we get more of those conversations, because there are more chapters, and uh, uh, and we get, uh, we, we see more explicitly the way in which Graf is going out of his way to isolate Ender, to set them against each other and see if he can, uh, and, and see what Ender will do when confronted with this situation. We, you know, we, we the, the, the sort of, one of the primary, uh, you know, Issues, not not themes exactly, but one of the primary issues that we get is um, sorry, my strange hissing sound. I don't know where that's coming from. Um, but anyway, uh, we 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 get this uh, this this primary this primary emphasis that you know the main issue in those chapters is the active manipulation of the um, of the system of the of, of, of Ender's world so that you know they're putting him deliberately into these very difficult uh, positions um, anyway <laughs> cases at least I now know that that wasn't a gas leak in my house Um yeah, I have no idea. Sarah King wonders, what if Ender had kissed the giant instead of murdering him? It's a really good question. I don't know. Um, it, it, of course, does not seem to me at all obvious that tunneling through his eyeball was the only way out of that situation. Um, just as, you know, because Sarah, you could ask the same thing. Um, had he eaten the snake instead of kissing it at the end of Chapter 9, would that have worked too? I think there's a chance it might have. I don't know. But, um, anyway, uh, those are good questions. Well, let's go on to, uh, to look at a little bit more, but, uh, but I want to pause here for a second, because already I've been doing a lot, you know, we've been doing a lot as we've been talking about it, um, uh, of, you know, really sort of detailed interpretation of the, you know, very sort of strange dreamlike world in which Ender is living there in the mind game, in the, in the computer game. Um, and there might be, I don't know if any of you here are having this reaction, but I can certainly imagine people having a reaction which says, you know, I think we're going a little... Uh, a little too far here. I think that we're, um, you know, I, I, this is all very well. We can construct some, uh, some, you know, sort of intricate readings, but what reason do we really have to think that this stuff is really there? Um, and, and in fact, um, again, especially if you have the audio version, if you listen to the interview with Orson Scott Card that comes at the end uh, of the, uh, the the dramatized version, um, you will, you know, he he says explicitly of these sequences of the mind game sequences that uh, he he didn't really mean anything by them. They're just like totally stream of consciousness on his part. You know, it's just like whatever weird thing came to him next. He just kind of put it down. Um, so again, you know, it, I I could easily see somebody saying. Uh, you know, aren't we just kind of spinning our wheels here? I mean, again, Orson Scott Card says, I didn't mean anything by it. It was just stream of consciousness. So why am I spending all this time trying to be like, the giant is the symbol of, you know, authority in the battle school, if Orson Scott Card says that that's not how it works? Um, well, here's my answer to that question. Um, if an author wants to say that he didn't mean anything by it, that it was just stream of consciousness... 
I'm fine with that. Okay, that's fine, Orson Scott Card. Maybe you didn't mean anything by it. Um, in that case, I think that your, his subconscious was doing a bang-up job uh, because I think that we can see some really clear patterns. Whether he intended them or not, I think that we can see some really clear patterns. And what's more, um, whether it be, maybe he didn't intend it, but despite the fact, in that case, that he didn't intend it, the book itself gives us clear cues to interpret them. Um, we are not permitted by the story not to interpret um, the the stuff that happens within the mind game. If that's what Orson Scott Card wants, he, if he wants us not to in, to interpret it, well, I, I then I'm afraid he's arguing against his own story because his own story does, in fact, very strongly push us in that direction. Let me show you what I mean by this. Um, by the way, this is um, this is one of the reasons why. I uh, I don't listen to authors <laughs> when they say things like this. <laughs> but anyway, um, exactly as uh, Susan Minger says, uh, if the author didn't consciously mean it, that doesn't mean it isn't there. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, t- t- when when an author says, you know, oh no, I didn't have any intentions there. I find that very interesting. I'm always I'm always fascinated to hear about that. Again, it, it doesn't convince me that there's in fact nothing to be seen. Um, it just um, uh, it just sort of tells me a little bit about their process, you know. I, I um, and I don't know, you know. To some people, I think perhaps it might sound strange to say something like, um, "I don't think," you know, to take a, a given book and say, "I'm not really sure that the author fully understood the meaning of what it was that he wrote." Um, that might seem strange, might even seem arrogant. I don't think so. I'm not trying to say that I'm like far smarter than the author or anything like that, but I, that seems to me actually to be kind of often the case. Um, and that one of the things that I am always interested to hear author, one thing that I do notice when I do listen to authors talking about their work, is the extent to which they often speak as if the thing just sort of happened. Um, you know, like the way that Tolkien writes as if he's discovering something, not as if he's inventing it. And many authors who just sort of speak, speak of their characters as if they are people that they, you know, have met and, uh, uh, and learned about rather than, 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 you know, a, a, a story or a character they've just invented. That seems to be often, um, the case. And so it's, it, it actually seems to me not an insult to an author to say that, but rather a recognition of what many authors themselves seem to say. Um, and, you know, there's a way in which I've become, you know, I used to think, I used to be very resistant, very resistant when people would say, like, oh, you know, the author's intention isn't really what's important, mostly because the majority of the time that people used to say to me, the author's intention isn't really important, what they meant is the book really has no objective meaning at all. You know, there's really nothing, um, it's all purely subjective, like, you can kind of put, project onto it anything that you want to for your own subjective meaning, and I'll do mine, and, and, uh, you know, we can talk about it, I guess, if you want, but there's really nothing there. Um, you know, nothing, capital T, there, in the book. And that I always found deeply unsatisfying. Um, even though clearly there are large subjective elements, and uh, but nevertheless, it, that doesn't it just uh, that never seemed right to me. But I think, as I've sort of come to 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 look at this more and to be thinking more about these things, 
um, I've come to agree that the author's intention is very far from the most important thing. In fact, haven't you have, have you ever had the experience of reading a book that you found really interesting, and then you listen to the author talk about it and with the th- kind of things they actually were thinking and were intending, and you're like, dude, have you even read your own book? Like, it's, it's not just that you didn't understand. You you know you seem to to not really see some of these other things that were going on, but like. What you're seeing is really okay. Whatever. Um, uh, anyway, um, I think that it's uh, uh, so, so. Anyway, it, uh, I do think that the author's intention isn't the most important thing, but that doesn't mean um, I- I've come around to feeling more and more almost the opposite of the of that other thing that I said. That is, it's the 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 alternative to the author's intention matters most. the The alternative is not there's no objective meaning. But rather, meaning is the domain of readers, right? When we receive the story, we perceive meaning. That if when an author tries to insert meaning, um, you know, they can intend something, and that intention might in fact come through. Uh, but the meaning of a book usually is more than the intention of the author. That's almost in, in increasingly in my own view a defi- almost a defining characteristic of what makes for a really good book um, and uh, uh, and and that meaning it's the author is in, in control of that meaning meaning is about the readers and the book once the book has been written then you know the author can try to in, they can intend some things, and I, you know, it's not that I think their intentions are irrelevant or never happen or or anything like that. Maybe they do, but it's not the same thing as the meaning. And uh, you know, again, then the meaning is out of their hands once they've written it. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Lynn says, uh, meaning meanings are created. Uh, it's an active process. I agree. Um, even in even in a sense an interactive process at times I think between the reader uh, and uh, and 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 the story um, and that's one of the things you know it's why I find so fascinating doing doing the kinds of close readings that I do you know like I did in my Hobbit book like I you know like I like to do in my classes um, I find that I learn so much you know there is there is uh, there's so much to discover um, and so much always so much new to see. Um, it's really, it's really fun. But anyway, um, I, um, I, Daniel says, like the mind game, we create stories together. Exactly. See, Daniel, the mind game itself serves as a metaphor for this whole process, right? And so that, 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 that puts intensive irony on Orson Scott Card saying, oh yeah, don't read anything into the mind game. Cause man, I was just totally, whoo, you know, making stuff up as I went along there. You're probably going to think I'm crazy. You're probably going to want to psychoanalyze me. He said, when you, when you, when you, when you read about that. Uh, okay. Um, uh, <laughs> maybe so, but that's not my primary interest. Uh, instead, I think that he's um, either, you know, I, I don't know, I don't want to accuse him of lying. I do think that sometimes authors uh, try to spin things in particular ways or try to deflect certain readings or interpretations or, or, or what they fear to be misinterpretations. Um, so I don't always trust what authors say in that way, even even what they say about their intentions, I don't always necessarily uh, uh, believe. But um, 
Uh, but in any case, if he did mean this, and, and he really genuinely believes that he didn't intend anything by it, and it's not to be interpreted, then uh, uh, then I think... Uh, I, I, I then I would I would encourage Orson Scott Card to to read through this with us because I think he'll he'll discover a lot of stuff there that he didn't see before. Um, but uh, anyway, anyway, yeah, Sean, you're right. Sean uh, Smith is uh, chiding me and saying that he didn't uh, he, he didn't think he was saying that Card was saying that didn't mean anything. No, you're right. I'm I'm uh, slightly exaggerating what he said there. But he, I mean, he did talk about his being stream and, and he explicitly referred to the end of the world. Um, section is the one that was, you know, sort of really stream of consciousness on his part. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Sean says that it, it was emphasizing that he didn't have a particular conscious plan for developing it. Uh, right, 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 exactly. Um, anyway, let me show you what I mean when I say um, uh, when I say that I, I feel the book really pushes us to do interpretation. Because by that, I don't just mean interpretation is really tantalizing, right? I mean, it's so rich in detail, and it's really tempting to read into it. That's true, but that's not what I mean when I say that the book uh, is inviting us. I mean it's explicitly inviting us. Let me, let, let's look at the end of the world passage, uh, and, and I'll show you what I mean. Okay, so here's Ender getting to the end of the world for the first time. He stood on a small ledge, high on a cliff overlooking a terrain of bright and deep green forest, with dashes of autumn color and patches here and there of cleared land, with ox-drawn plows and small villages, a castle on a rise in the distance, and clouds riding currents of air below him. Above him the sky was the ceiling of a vast cavern, with crystals dangling and bright stalactites. The door closed behind him. Ender studied the scene intently. With the beauty of it he cared less for survival than usual. He cared little, at the moment, what the game of this place might be. He had found it, and seeing it was its own reward. And so, with no thought of consequences, he jumped from the ledge. Now he plummeted downward toward a roiling river and, and savage rocks, but a cloud came between him and the ground as he fell, and caught him and carried him away. It took him to the tower of the castle, and through the open window, bearing him in. There it left him, in a room with no apparent door in floor or ceiling, and windows looking out over a certainly fatal fall. A moment ago he had thrown himself from a ledge carelessly. This time he hesitated. The small rug before the fire unraveled itself into a long, slender serpent with wicked teeth. I am your only escape, it said. Death is your only escape. Okay. Um, now, first... As almost all of these passages are, these mind game passages, uh, it's very rich in suggestive detail. Um, there are a lot of tantalizing connections. You know, what it makes me think of, and it might make you think in different ways, it's sort of thinking about connections with the, uh, with the rest of the story. Um, it seems, you know, here he is standing, um, uh, standing up above, you know, seeing the whole world spread beneath him, and then he flies. Now he is plummeting down and he's caught by a cloud and carried off into a castle in the distance. And it seems to, it's, I am tempted anyway to, to, to this sounds a little autobiographical on Ender's part. Um, that is seeing the world, you know, cause he, he did 
uh, you know, launch away in a rocket from the world, you know, so that the, the, leaving the world behind him, and he goes to, well, it's not a castle, but to this fortified, militarized place where he is trapped and whose only escape is death. Um, I, you know, I, I, that's my, my, my immediate temptation to sort of move in that direction, thinking about the end of the, you know, the, associating the battle school with the castle at the end of the world, the place where Ender is trapped, right, and he doesn't see any way out and he doesn't know what to do next. Um, you know, it's like the recapitulation of the giant's drink situation in a sense. Now, there's nothing conclusive here you know, my reading might be really unsatisfactory, but it's interesting anyway. But again, are we justified in interpreting this? Um, Yes. Look what happens immediately afterwards. Furious, Ender snapped off the desk and went to the color wall where he found the ribbon of green, green, brown. Remember, he had just been, like, the message just appeared to tell him that he's late and he has to go to his new army. Remember, this is all happening. His coming to the end of the world is all happening at the exact moment which he, when he is transitioning from his launch group to Salamander Army, right? So at that moment of transition, he stops on the way to Salamander Army, and that's when he uh, gets to the end of the world here. Um, and followed it as it lit up before him. The dark green, light green, and brown ribbon reminded him of the early autumn kingdom he had found in the game. I must go back there, he told himself. The serpent is a long thread. I can let myself down from the tower and find my way through that place. Perhaps it's called the end of the world because it's the end of the games. Because I can go to one of the villages and become one of the little boys working and playing there with nothing to kill and nothing to kill me, just living there. As he thought of it, though, he could not imagine what just living might actually be. He had never done it in his life, but he wanted to do it anyway. That is to say, one really simple thing that we see right away, Ender interprets it, right? How can we resist interpreting and trying to figure out what is the end of the world? What do these things stand for? What does it mean? When Ender himself immediately is performing that exact same function. He, he has a theory. Maybe the end of the world means the end of the games, right? Maybe it means I can go to the village and just be a normal boy. Um, now, it turns out he's wrong, right? In fact, it sounds rather like he's more than wrong, like he's horribly wrong, that he's horribly ironically wrong, uh, because he seems to be thinking that it means escape. It's the end of the world. It's the end of the games, right? I'm done! No, when it, in fact, it means imprisonment. Uh, he's being taken to this castle not because it is, you know, this entrance to fairyland, like he had been told before, but rather it is this final trap, this final imprisonment. The only escape is death, the serpent tells him. Um, so, again, Ender immediately tries to interpret it. So in case we weren't, um, we, uh, we, in, that is, in case we weren't, uh, uh, um, yet doing this interpretation, Ender is immediately prompting us to do it. And in case we haven't picked up that uh, cue, we're not immediately, but we're given another one pretty soon. That is, we see, we get the teacher conversation at the beginning of chapter 9, and they're in trying to interpret the end of the world and what it means. Uh, this is, uh, uh, this is uh, what's his name? Major Imbu talking to, to Colonel Graff and explaining about the mind game. And the mind game is designed to help shape them, help them find worlds they can be comfortable in, 
You don't get it, do you, Major Imbu? I don't want Ender being comfortable with the end of the world. Our business here is not to be comfortable with the end of the world. The end of the world in the game isn't necessarily the end of humanity in the Bugger Wars. It has a private meaning to Ender. Good. What meaning? I don't know, sir. I'm not the kid. Ask him. Major Imbu, I'm asking you. There could be a thousand meanings. Try one. You've been isolating the boy. Maybe he's wishing for the end of this world, the battle school. Or maybe it's about the end of the world he grew up with as a little boy, his home, coming here. Or maybe it's his way of coping with having broken up so many other kids here. Ender's a sensitive kid, you know, and he's done some pretty bad things to people's bodies. He might be wishing for the end of that world. Or none of the above, says Karl Graf. Um, yeah. So, we see them scrabbling for interpretations, right? Trying to understand. Um, Note the leap that Colonel Graf makes right away. Um, Help them find worlds they can be comfortable in. And he says, you don't get it. I don't want him to be comfortable with the end of the world. So Notice what the phrase, the end of the world, means for Graf, right? He's thinking only of, uh, as Major Imbu says, the end of humanity in the Bugger Wars, right? Um, that's not, as uh, as Major Imbu says, I think I agree with Major Imbu on this point, um, that's not what he's talking about. Graf seems to be thinking of, like, a chronological end of the world, like the end point of the world, the end point of the human world, anyway, the end point of humanity, um, the time in the future when humanity comes to an end, and I don't want him to be comfortable with that idea. Um, it does not seem to me at all, based on what we see in the actual game and what Ender th- is thinking about it, it does not seem to me at all like this is a, a an end of time thing. It seems He seems to be thinking about the end of the world, not in time, but in 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 space, in a sense. Imbu seems to be much more close there when he's thinking about, you know, the end of the end of this world, that is coming to the limit of the world that he is in. Um, not to the point at which that world terminates, but coming to its limits, coming to its boundaries, and not being able or not wanting to move beyond that, right? Um Graf, of course, will continue to pursue his quest to understand this scene and what's going on with this. This is, in fact, why he goes, ultimately, why he goes back to Earth and asks for Valentine's help to try to understand what this means to Ender, what is the private meaning that it has for Ender. Um, uh, so again, the whole focus, uh, not the whole focus of Chapter 9, of course, there's other stuff going on in Chapter 9 as well, um, but a major focal point of this part of the story is how to correctly interpret the end of the world passage. So this is what I mean when I say the story demands that we interpret uh, the, at least that one passage of the mind game. And if it's going to insist that we understand, we, we try to grapple with the meaning behind, uh, you know, the, the meaning or maybe multiple meanings 
of this sequence in the mind game, I feel fully justified uh, in uh, carrying on doing that with other parts uh, of the of the work. We'll come back to this scene and what this means uh, at the end of class, as I am very confident we're going to get all the way through uh, the all the passages I wanted to talk about and all the issues I wanted to discuss tonight. Um, uh, so that's fine. Um, but here's, an, here's another example. Another example of this kind of uh, what seems to me the inevitability of interpretation here. Again, the children laughed at him. This is the children in the playground. Laugh all you like, Ender thought. I know what you are. He pushed one of them. This is the second time, of course, he's confronted them. They've already turned into wolves and devoured him. Um, and he's seen them the second time. She followed him, angry. Ender led her up the slide. Of course he fell through. But this time, following so closely behind him, she also fell through. When she hit the ground, she turned into a wolf and lay there, dead or stunned. One by one, Ender led each of the others into a trap, but before he had finished off the last of them, the wolves began reviving and were no longer children. Ender was torn apart again. This time, shaking and sweating, Ender found his figure revived on the giant's table. I should quit, he told himself. I should go to my new army. But instead he made his figure drop down from the table and walk around the giant's body to the playground. This time, as soon as the child hit the ground and turned into a wolf, Ender dragged the body to the brook and pulled it in. Each time the body sizzled as though the water were acid, the wolf was consumed, and a dark cloud of smoke arose and drifted away. The children were easily dispatched, though they began following him in twos and threes at the end. Ender found no wolves waiting for him in the clearing, and he lowered himself into the well on the bucket rope. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Oh, and Tom, I, you're absolutely right. I, 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 I don't want there to be mis- any misunderstanding about this. Tom Hillman says, um, we could view a possible answer in, in his interpreting these passages, all of the above. The author doesn't have to necessarily mean any single one of these possibilities. Card may not know, just as Tolkien sometimes did not know what the answer was to questions his work raised. Absolutely, absolutely. I am not at all trying to suggest that there is a real meaning which Card could reveal to us could reveal to us if he were just being honest and a little less coy about it, right? But he's, uh, you know, sort of being forthcoming and wanting us to guess. Um, I don't think that at all. Um, I, I, I'm perfectly willing to believe that uh, Card might not himself, uh, uh, you know, have consciously conceived the full meaning of what he was writing. Um, and I don't think he's necessarily holding a key. I also do think there can be multiple interpretations. I Even, you know, the multiple interpretations given by Major Imbu in that earlier passage um, seem to me uh, could both be true. Um... Uh, this is. Uh, um, I don't think there is necess- there, that there must only be one possible interpretation um, of uh, of of several of these passages, especially something as compl- as complicated as that end of the world room. But anyway, um, back to the back to the non children here, the children who really turn out to be wolves. Now, um, uh, you know, this is. Um, Something which, again, if we just look at the details of this passage, which seems to have very suggestive connections to other things that we see going on in the story, right? We have a playground, right? It's children's play. It's a game. 
right? Um, but it turns out to be combat. The, 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 the play, the apparent games, turn out only to be a setup which enables you to trap and destroy your enemies, right? Again, something which seems to have a certain amount of relevance to the rest of what's going on, even if we only think about it from a battle school point of view, right? Um, Notice also the sort of ruthlessness that is necessitated for survival. It's not enough just to deceive them. Um, by by luring them into the trap. You've got to deceive, to, and then you've got to kick them while they're down, right? You've got to take their unconscious bodies and drag them uh, into the stream where they will be horribly destroyed, and you've got to do it again and again and again until they're all gone, right? And, and you know, again, that dynamic seems like a familiar one, right? This seems to be um, a very similar thing to what's going on with Ender um, in other places. And again, if we think about how is he being trained, how is he being prepared, the going through, you know, the boring through the giant's eye, uh, the destruction of the wolf children, uh, it seems to fit with the patterns that we're seeing, both in how Ender tends to react anyway and how he's being trained to react um, by the training that's being given to him here at Battle School. Um, but there's another cue here. It's, it's not just this sort of this, the, the suggestive parallels that again lead me uh, to feel that I have not just a, not just a, a green light to interpret this, but almost a kind of a mandate to interpret this uh, and to apply it to the rest of the story, because once again, Ender does the same thing explicitly very soon after this in the story. Um, this is when he has first arrived at Salamander Army. Ender despaired. He already had nothing going for him, grossly undertrained, small, inexperienced, doomed to be resented for early advancement, and now by chance he had made exactly the wrong friend. That's Petra, of course. An outcast in Salamander Army, and she had just linked him with her in the minds of the rest of the army. A good day's work. For a moment, as Ender looked around at the laughing, jeering faces, he imagined their bodies covered with hair, their teeth pointed for tearing. Am I the only human being in this place? Are all the others animals, waiting only to devour? Then he remembered a lie. In every army, surely, there was at least one worth knowing. Um... Yes, yes. Okay, so again, we see him applying this, right? And it's not hard uh, to make... It wouldn't have been hard for us to make this jump even if Ender hadn't made it explicitly uh, himself, right? Justin, this is exactly what you were just suggesting a minute ago when we were looking at the wolf passage. It is like the other children at the battle school, to some extent, anyway. It's not exactly the same. Um, But again, it's not hard to make that kind of connection, especially with the hostility that he's going to go on to to meet, especially from Bonzo in uh, in uh, in in Salamander Army here. Um, But there's more than this. The scene with the children who turn out to be actually wolves um, is connected to more than this. It's not just about the hostility of the hostile kids uh, who are his enemies, like Stilson's gang first, and then uh, you know Bonzo and the other uh, the other older boys who attack Ender and the other launches at their practice or any of those things. It's not just that. It's not just the hostility of his opponents, um, but rather, well, we get this other theme that keeps coming up about children who aren't really children. This is in the little prologue 
section with Colonel Graff at the beginning of Chapter 7. Does it ever seem to you that these boys aren't children? I look at what they do, the way they talk, and they don't seem like little kids. They're the most brilliant children in the world, each in his own way. But shouldn't they still act like children? They aren't normal. They act like history. Napoleon and Wellington, Caesar and Brutus. We're trying to save the world, not heal the wounded heart. You're too compassionate, says Colonel Graff. They're not normal kids. They're weird. They're different. But they're not weird. They're not just freaks. They act like, he says, they act like history. Um, yeah. And of course, he's not the only one. Uh, that is, whoever that guy is, isn't the only one um, who uh, is... Uh, who thinks that way, right? Who looks at the kids that way. Hans says, uh, yeah, Neil Einstein points out, they're making them not like children. Yeah, exactly. Um, notice even the way that they isolate them. Um, that pressure on them. You don't cry at battle school, right? You don't talk about home. You never talk about home. You know, you're a six-year-old kid who's been taken away from your family, but you're never supposed to even acknowledge your family, right? Not only are you not supposed to miss your family, you know, you're never supposed to even talk about it. Nobody speaks about their parents or their families in battle school. And these are six-year-olds we're talking about at first. Um, so yeah, no, absolutely. They are being made into non-children, as Hans, uh, Hans Rose says, they're, they're, they're tools. They're being made into tools. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Brandon, you're anticipating me. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but of course, you'll remember, as at least one of you was pointing out earlier on, this is exactly what Dink says. Uh, in that co the conversation that Dink has with Ender, I think is a really important one. Um I know, says Dink. You've been here you've been here a year. You think these people are normal. Well they're not. We're not. I look in the library, I call up books on my desk. Old ones because they won't let us have anything new. But I've got a pretty good idea what children are, and we're not children. <clears throat> I love the fact that Dink, who's what like ten, maybe eleven, uh, has like done research into what children are like, right? Uh, anyway, we are not children. Children can lose sometimes, and nobody cares. Children aren't in armies. They aren't commanders. They don't rule over 40 other kids. It's more than anybody can take and not get crazy. Ender tried to remember what other children were like in his class at school back in the city, but all he could think of was Stilson. I love the ambiguity of that last sentence, right? Um, because, of course, it cuts both ways, and it cuts both ways exactly equally. He tries to think about other kids, normal kids, and the only normal kid he can remember is the bully who tried to beat him up. Stilson and his gang, who acted like wolves, right? But, of course, it's possible that when all he could think of was Stilson, all he was thinking of is the the the, the broken and bleeding body of Stilson <laughs> sprawling on the ground after Ender got through with him, right? Um, Ender is the wolf, not Stilson in that version. In fact, they're both kind of like wolves. Um, so anyway, I, I, I really love the way that that last uh, line there sort of cuts both ways. And Carissa, I, I completely agree with you. It's not that they're just not... That 
it's not only that they're non-children, they're non-human. Absolutely, they're going through a kind of dehumanizing uh, regimen. It's the giant's drink, right? Um, no matter which way you choose, if you choose to accept our regimen, you will fail. And who really knows what happens to the kids who are iced, right? Remember what Graf says to Valentine? Um, when she wants more details about what's going on with Ender, and he's like, I could tell you, but then I'd have to keep you in, in you know, like, confinement, right? I, I could... It's secret. Um, I can't imagine that the people who ice out of battle school just go back to their moms and dads and rejoin society. Um, in fact, based on everything Graf says, that certainly does not happen. So again, who knows what happens to the kids who ice out of battle school? Um... If you take the one drink, you're going to be destroyed in that way. If you take the other drink uh, and get with the program, you're going to be dehumanized and you're going to be destroyed in a different way. Um, but, uh, anyhow, yeah. Um, it's, so, so, yeah, it seems to be sort of a general condition, but certainly um, a general condition uh, um, uh, describing the kids here. Uh, here at here at battle school, um, so they're not they're not normal kids. But again, the one simple point that I would make here is clearly this is um, uh, this is the uh, another piece of evidence. Again, it, we when we're reading this stuff, we have that image in our minds, right? The mind game has given us. Uh, that visual image of the children who turn into wolves and to attack and who attack Ender, and against which he has to be merciless and ruthless in order to survive, right? Um, and it becomes really easy to see how that maps out onto what's going on in uh, not just in the battle school as a whole, but in you know like those laughing, jeering faces in Salamander Army, um, but rather how it maps onto the story as a whole, how that moment in the mind game really seems to bring to the surface a nagging issue, which is not a simple issue. Um, You know, again, like, who's a wolf? uh, And who's not a wolf? Ender's not the one turning into a wolf in that part of the mind game, and yet, um, is he he a, a real kid? Why does he fall through the slide and the other ones don't? fall through the slides, unless they're following him, right? Um, oh, Megan, that's a wonderful point. Megan Vance says, uh, they're becoming animals to save humanity. Uh, Ender seems to sense the irony. Yes, Ender is more self-aware about that, as we've said, than, uh, than, than, um, than many other things. Um, let's see. Um, the conversation with Dink <clears throat> uh, draws our attention back to a larger theme, um, we're going to come away from the the non the non children as wolves idea. We'll come back to that in a little bit, but I want to segue for a second, um, uh, since I've touched on this conversation with Dink, uh, because I said I do think it draws our attention back to something that we were talking about last time. Um, that is the idea of the individual being a tool for humanity. Right, um, in the way that Colonel Graf is is laying things out for Ender in his recruitment speeches, um, really the two speeches that we were looking at last time, both the one that he makes in Ender's living room and the one that he makes right after they arrive at battle school, um, 
and the teachers, Graf himself in particular, but the teachers of battle school as a whole, uh, seem to be sort of the representatives of the collective. They're the representatives of humanity. They're the ones who are making the decisions on behalf of humanity. Um, and when we see pressure being put on Graf in those little vignettes at the beginning of each chapter, um, we can see the pressure of that, that he is kind of taking it upon himself to represent humanity, to form these kids into tools to serve humanity, and he is the one who is going to make the decision about what is best for humanity, right? So we see ways in which Graf in particular, the teachers in general, are representatives of humanity, of this collective that is kind of uh, um, set out against the individual to which the individual, you know, and, and, and to which the individual has to submit in order to become a tool for its best interest, their best interest. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and again, Dink sees this. I can't believe, he says, I can't believe you haven't seen through all this crap yet, Ender, but I guess you're young. Those other armies, they aren't the enemy. It's the teachers. They're the enemy. They get us to fight each other, to hate each other. The game is everything. Win, win, win. It amounts to nothing. We kill ourselves, go crazy trying to beat each other, and all the time the old bastards are watching us, studying us, discovering our weak points, deciding whether we're good enough or not. Well, good enough for what? I was six years old when they brought me here. What the hell did I know? They decided I was right for the program, but nobody ever asked me if the program was right for me. So why don't you go home? Dink smiled crookedly. Because I can't give up the game. He tugged at the fabric of his flash suit, which lay on the bunk beside him. Because I love this. Um... Dink gets this, right? Dink gets the fact that they're not really the enemies of each other. That it is, again, like it's not if you sort of back up a step from the mind game situation, right? Um, Ender's problem is not with kids who turn into wolves. Ender's problem is not the room at the end of the world. Um, It's not the snake. It's not the mirror. It's the computer. Right, it's the computer that's putting him in these situations. He might hate, and he does seem to hate, what he has to do. He hates having to kill the giant. He hates having to kill the wolves. Uh, you know, to 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 murder the children who are wolves or not children or whatever. Um, he hates doing that, but he has to. Why does he have to? Well, because the computer program he's playing is making him do that. He's playing the game, though, right? Dink is one who's saying, "Look, we're complicit." in this. We're being complicit. Um, you've got to see through all this crap, right? Don't buy into it. Don't buy don't don't be a part of the system. Don't be a part of the machine. Um yes, good. Um yeah, yeah. Exactly, Gerald, exactly, because Ender can't leave the mind game alone even though he hates it absolutely exactly like Dink, right? And he keeps like, stupid computer, I should go do something else. I should stop this. But he can't. He goes back. He goes back. He goes back. He can't help himself. Very good. Very good. Um, but of course, it's not just the teachers at school, right? Again, they're only the representatives of the bigger issue. But that's what I came for, Ender said. Now this is ju- ju- jumping ahead a little bit in their conversation. For them to make me into a tool. To save the world. 
I can't believe you still believe it. Believe what? The bugger menace. Save the world. Listen, Ender, if the buggers were going, were coming back to get us, they'd be here. They aren't invading again. We beat them, and they're gone. But the videos... All from the first and second invasions. Your grandparents weren't born yet when Mazer Rackham wiped them out. You watch. It's all a fake. There is no war, and they're just screwing around with us. But why? Because as long as people are afraid of the buggers, the IF can stay in power. And as long as the IF is in power, certain countries can keep their hegemony. But keep watching the vids, Ender. People will catch on to this game pretty soon, and there will be a civil war to end all wars. That's the menace ender, not the buggers. And in that war, when it comes, you and I won't be friends, because you're American, just like our dear teachers, and I am not. Um, Dink, of course, sees past. Again, it's not just the teachers versus the students. The teachers are the spokespersons for humanity as a whole. You're a tool to save humanity, right? And Dink is questioning, questioning their representation of humanity as a whole. Um, They are out for themselves. They are out to retain power at the expense of the rest of the human race. Right? They are not, in fact, interested primarily in saving humanity. And he frankly disbelieves in the idea of a third bugger war. Now, of course, it's going to turn out that Dink is not quite right about this. Yeah, exactly. Sean, what I was going to say, Dink is half right. he is half right. They are, in fact, quite serious about a bugger war, um, because they're busily precipitating one, of course, as we will see. Um, but um, uh, but he is partly right. Um, yeah, interesting. Susan says the teachers are tools too. Yes, tools of the IF, right? He's suggesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Carissa asks, why does Dink get it when Graf misses it? The buggers aren't coming back. Um, What's well, all the mentality, right? The Stilson mentality, or rather the anti-Stilson mentality. Um, humanity, or at least the IF, or at least some officers in the IF have done exactly the same, uh, you know, uh, calculus of survival that Ender does when he's confronted by Stilson and his gang, right? How can I ensure that I don't just win this fight today, like they did in the second Bugger Wars, right? Um, it's not enough to have Mazer Rackham win, right? That won this war, fine. How can I win all the wars? Right to come, um, and remember, they do have enough. It's not that their conclusion is utterly irrational. The buggers did come twice. It's not that like they just came once and are assuming, "Oh my goodness, they're obviously coming back." They did come back once already, so it's not a wholly irrational conclusion to think that they might come back a third time. Um, but again, it's that same calculus. Uh, no, I need to think outside the box here. Right, I need to. Uh, it's time to go through the eye of the giant, says IF. Right, we're not just going to drink out of either one of the glasses that's presented to us. Right, that is to die 
you know, to like to, to do the equivalent of icing out, right? To 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 just not be prepared and and be be, um, uh, you know, be dead meat when the buggers come, or to try to defend humanity, right? No, it's let's let's beef up our defenses. Let's try to be ready when the buggers come again. That's what everybody else thinks they're doing, right? But say no, no, no we're not going to do that. We're not going to take, take either one of those. We're going to go right through the we're we're going to go right through this giant eyeball, right? Um. So that seems to be the decision that IF has made. Um, but again, they don't seem to be willing. Uh, you know, Carissa, so I guess my answer, why does Dink get it when Graf misses it? It's an unwillingness to choose one of the drinks, I think, anyway. Um, anyway. Um, Kay says, Kay... Then Abraham makes a great point. Maybe Graf too got to the end of the world, uh, in this case, the end of the Bugger Wars, and didn't know how to just live. He needed to keep the game going. He couldn't give the game up either. You know, okay, that works. <laughs> it actually works pretty well. Um, uh, I like that parallel a lot. Um, again, what I would emphasize is... It's not irrational. I don't think that... When we see the parallels, when we see the parallels between Ender's situation with Stilson and uh, with humanity's confrontation with the buggers, um, when we see those circumstances, if we are uncomfortable with... Ender kicking the crap out of Stilson, which I think we're supposed to be uncomfortable with. He's uncomfortable with it. I mean, if that scene kind of leaves us with a bad taste in our mouths, um, it's easy to then move from that, even before we get to the end of the book, to move from that and be like, I'm a little uncomfortable, you know, with what's going on in the Bugger Wars. Um, But, uh, but I don't think we, I, I think we have to hesitate before going too far with that. Um, I don't think that we can be too hasty in condemning either one, either the IF or Ender in that moment. Um, Ender is a social outcast because he's a third. He is he believes he's going to be on his own from now on. He's just lost the monitor, right? So there's no there's no question of him being taken up to battle school. There's nobody's watching out for him anymore. He is alone. No one's going to help him, and he's got to take care of himself somehow. And he's outnumbered, and he's smaller, and he's got to do something. He or he's just going to die, right? Um, I mean, he's just going to get the crap kicked out of him all the time, so what does he do? Again, that's not to say that what he does is the awesomest thing, and I'm giving two thumbs up to it. But I think that we have to be cautious in condemning it. Um, If we really put ourselves in his position, his reasoning does make sense. And if we put ourselves into the position of, you know, Graf and the officers of of IF, the choice that they make makes sense. Too. Again, the buggers have come twice. What reason do they have for thinking they won't come a third time? Um, but Sharon Powell is right. Sharon says maybe Graf is just pure military and he can't see anything outside of that box. Yeah, I mean, I was suggesting that Graf doesn't want to drink either drink, right? That he wants to go straight through the eyeball of the giant too. But you're right, Sharon, that there's reason to think that 
Graf and the officers of IF don't necessarily see outside the box in the same way that Ender does. Um, but, uh, but I don't know. I think we do get some evidence that they kind of do, actually. Remember the scene... Um, in the rocket, right after the launch, when Graf comes in and all of the other boys are, they've, they're still, it's the orientation thing that we were looking at last time, when Ender is the only one who gets the fact that direction is purely arbitrary now that they're in no gravity, and Graf is the one that's sort of toying with the boys, right? He's trying to mess them up by, you know, standing up in one way and orienting himself in a different way. Um, that is to say, Ender gets it, and Graf gets it. They're the only two people in the rocket who get it, right? Who get that way of looking at things, looking outside of the framework, the accepted, adopted framework that you've brought to the thing. They can see outside that framework, right? That's, again, that's what Ender does with his, you know, the whole, the enemy's gate is down thing. Um, he can see outside the accepted, the the, the, the framework that he brings in. Um, yeah, yeah. Brian Yoder makes a wonderful point, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to, I don't want to go, go there too heavily right now, Brian, we'll, we'll, we'll wait for that a little bit, but it's very worth mentioning. Brian says, the IF and its officers don't see the buggers as human or equal in any sense. When they look, they only see a menace, a monster, something without thought or emotion. They see only the wolf and not the child. Ender learns to see both. Yes. Yes, it would seem to be that they're what they're wanting to do. If again, if the, what, what the computer is trying to train him in is uh, is not is, is is to say not there are creatures who are sometimes children and sometimes wolves, but rather creatures who look like children, but they're really wolves, right? Treat them all as wolves. Think of them all as wolves. Um, get acclimated to treating them ruthlessly and mercilessly because they're just wolves, right? Um, and you're right, that seems to be certainly in keeping with uh, uh, sort of the uh, the bugger threat in general. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, Steve, uh, Steve Hawley, to whom I always like to appeal, Steve, Steve is, I know, uh, himself a, a soldier and a veteran and can certainly speak to these things much more, uh, much more directly than I can, um, says, you know, the military is trained to war game against the worst case and plan accordingly. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, again, I, I don't think, I think that we're missing the point. If we look at Colonel Graf and the rest of the officers and be like, oh, that's horrible. You know, them just assuming the buggers are going to come back like that and, like, you know, taking a preemptive strike against them. I mean, that's horrible. No, it's not hor- It's prudent, actually. Um, it makes perfect sense within their framework. Um, it is indeed the logical thing to do, just as what Ender does to Stilson is from one point of view, a logical thing to do. Um, um, so, Steve, I absolutely agree with you, and I think that's a really important thing for us to uh, for us to recall. Um, but um, but anyway, let's move on. I'm, I'm up to passage eleven already. Ed, I bet I beat your prediction already, didn't I? Uh, but anyway, let's let's uh, let's let's stay on the move. What we what we see here is that at school. Um, as you know, as we move into the later chapters here, the later part of today's reading, what we begin to see is something that several of you were already referring to, that is Ender's increasing dehumanization. That's what I sort of see um, the story getting at here. 
um, in this moment when he's starting to despair. Um, this is when he's talking to, to, to Shen and Eli, and they um, uh, they are joking with each other, right? They're treating each other like friends, but they're not treating Ender like a friend anymore. And they apologized again, back to business, back to respect. And Ender realized that in their laughter, in their friendship, it had not occurred to them that he could have been included. How could they think I was part of it? Did I laugh? Did I join in? Just stood there watching like a teacher. That's how they think of me, too. Teacher. Legendary soldier. Not one of them. Not someone that you embrace and whisper salam in his ear. That only lasted while Ender still seemed a victim, still seemed vulnerable. Now he was the master soldier, and he was completely, utterly alone. Feel sorry for yourself, Ender. He typed the words on his desk as he lay on his bunk. Poor Ender. Then he laughed at himself and cleared away the words. Not a boy or girl in the school who wouldn't be glad to trade places with me. Um, yeah, yeah. Notice how the dehumanization here goes to ways that is he has been dehumanized, but he has also adopted that role. And he notices this. Again, as, was, as I was saying last time, Ender is very self-aware, right? He's very self-conscious of these things. Did I laugh? Did I join in? He can't just be mad at them. Why are you treating me like this? Why don't you treat me like a friend? Instead, he says, yeah, why the heck didn't I act like their friend? Why Why am I not able to act like, like a child, like a boy? They're having a moment, right? They're acting like friends, even for a moment, almost acting like kids. Um... But he just stands there watching like a teacher. Justin says this is how he's been isolated once again. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's different. He's... we. What has he become known as? He doesn't use the word here, though he used it before uh, in the conversation with Dink. But he's not used it here, but teacher, legendary soldier, tool, right? This is Ender becoming a tool, dehumanized. Um, and we see the effect of this in the room at the end of the world. Except, of course, saying there's no danger, There's nothing happens in the game anymore, uh, he never is killed gruesomely anymore, um, except, of course, in the room in the castle at the end of the world. It was the one dangerous place left. And Ender, however often he vowed that he would not, always went back there, always killed the snake, always looked his brother in the face, and always, no matter what he did next, died. It was no different this time. He tried to use the knife on the table to pry through the mortar and pull out a stone from the wall. As soon as he breached the seal of the mortar, water began to gush in through the crack, and Ender watched his desk as his figure, now out of his control, struggled madly to stay alive to keep from drowning. The windows of his room were gone, the water rose, and his figure drowned. All the while, the face of Peter Wigan in the mirror stayed and looked at him. I'm trapped here, Ender thought, trapped at the end of the world, with no way out. And he knew at last the sour taste that had come to him, despite all his successes in the battle school. It was despair. Despair. He is not set free at the end of the world. If the end of the world did, in his mind, represent something like the end of battle school, uh, you know, the end of hurting people, as you know, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Major? What's his name? Imram. I've already forgotten his name. Um, Anyway, is that, okay, this is annoying me. Uh, Imbu, sorry, Imbu. Uh, that, uh, as Major Imbu was suggesting, um, 
it's it's turned out to be ironically reversed, right? Um, it's not liberation. Uh, it is, as I said before, where he is trapped, or rather a representation, um, you know, a sort of a rendering into this sort of visual and symbolic form within the mind game, the place where he is in his own mind, the way in which he is trapped. Everything he does ends in his own death. He can't go anywhere. He is stuck in this room where what he sees in the mirror is a an image of Peter with blood trickling down his chin and the tail of the snake coming out of his mouth. Um, trapped at the end of the world. Um, and he despairs. He loses hope. Um, this gets worse after he gets the letter from Valentine, right? Ender deleted the letter, wiped it out of memory, and then punched up the fantasy game. He was not sure why he was so eager to play the game, to get to the end of the world, but wasted no time getting there. Only when he coasted on the cloud, skimming over the autumnal colors of the pastoral world, only then did he realize what he hated most about Val's letter. All that it said was about Peter, about how he was not at all like Peter. The words she had said so often as she held him, comforted him, as he trembled in fear and rage and loathing after Peter had tortured him, that was all that the letter had said. And that was what they had asked for. The bastards knew about that, and they knew about Peter in the mirror in the castle room. They knew about everything, and to them Val was just one more tool to use to control him, just one more trick to play. Dink was right. They were the enemy. They loved nothing and cared for nothing, and he was not going to do what they wanted. He was damn well not going to do anything for them. He had had only one memory that was safe, one good thing, and those bastards had plowed it into him with the rest of the manure, and so he was finished. He wasn't going to play. Except he's going straight to the end of the world in the game, right? Uh, um, yeah, exactly. Tom Hillman says, oh, but he is, right? Exactly. In fact, Tom, it's worse than that, right? It, it's, it's, it's worse than that he's gonna. He is, like, at the, time, at the moment that he says, I'm not going to play anymore, he's playing, right? He's in the middle of the fantasy game. He's in the middle of the mind game. Um, he decides here, he says he's deciding he's going to stop being a tool. He's going to break out of the system. In fact... It seems, by implication, that the choice that he's making is to break out of the system as he did with the giant, right? I'm not going to play the game. I'm not going to choose one of your two stupid glasses. I'm going to kick them both over and drill my way through your eye, right? He's not going to play anymore. Well, what does that mean? We'll look and see what that means. We'll come back to this. Uh, I want to. I want to. I want to get to one other place before we come back and look at the end of the end of the world sequence. Um, but he says that that's what he's going to do. That he's not going to play along. Except, of course, remember, just as him kicking the crap out of Stilson made Graf really quite pleased once he learned the reason that Ender did it, so too, him kicking over the glasses and drooling his way through the giant's eye made Graf all over pleased. Um, so again, as he is saying, I'm not going to play anymore, I'm not going to do what they want me to do anymore, I'm out, I'm done in making the decision that he's making, he's doing what they want him to do. This is what they're pushing him towards in the end. 
Um, yeah. Um, okay. This brings me to Valentine and Peter, to the Locke and Demosthenes plot. Um, I, because we can't go any further without talking about Peter and what Peter's significance is here uh, in the in in the end of the world. Um, I have to admit, when I first read this book, I really hated the Locke and Demosthenes bits. Um, I thought it was a distraction. Um, I uh, I was I was I was I was kind of annoyed because I was really enjoying Ender at Battle School and I really quite liked the 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 battle room and I wanted to get back to I could tell Ender was about to get command of his own army and I was really eager to see what happened when Ender got command of his own army so I was like oh yeah fine enough with uh, you know Peter and Valentine taking over the world through through internet you know blogs uh, which uh, uh, which card anticipates really interestingly here actually. Um, recall that there was really no internet when this book was written, but, um, but anyway, uh, it's, um, uh, there's, there's, uh, I came to realize reading this book more times that in that initial reaction that I had, as I said, that was the initial reaction I had when I first read the book. Um, uh, yeah, Ed, exactly. Ed uh, says, now I love the Locke and Demosthenes stuff, but I didn't when I first read it. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, but, um, uh, but I realized that I was being a tool. Um, that I, like Dink, was being seduced by the games, right? Uh, I didn't realize the, ga- the games don't matter, right? Um, it doesn't matter who wins in the battle room, right? And the more I was getting engaged in like, oh, yeah, like, let's, how's it going to do it the next time? You know, oh, like, what's going to happen? I can't wait. It's so exciting. I loved it, right? But then I, I had this sort of uncomfortable moment the second or third time that I read this book, and I'm like, wait a second. Crap. I'm Dinkmaker, right? I, I've fallen into the trap, right? I see through the problem, and yet I can't help myself, right? Uh, anyway. Um, here's one thing that uh, certainly struck me pretty forcefully this last time, especially having been thinking about the wolf children as we've been thinking about them. Then we get to Peter and Valentine, and what do we see? Brandon, you were anticipating this. A couple people were anticipating this. What disturbed Valentine most of all was that Peter did not seem at all worried. Peter, why? This is when they're, he's first bringing up the fact that they're probably on the cusp of civil war. Peter, why do I get the idea that you are thinking of this as a golden opportunity for Peter Wigan? For both of us, Val. Peter, you're 12 years old. I'm 10. They have a word for people our age. They call us children, and they treat us like mice. But we don't think like other children, do we, Val? We don't talk like other children. And above all, we don't write like other children. Of course, we no, they're not normal kids. Just like the kids at battle school, they're not normal kids, right? Um, they treat us like mice, just like Ender's figure in the in the mind game, right? Just like the figure of Ender that bores through the eye of the giant back at the end of chapter six. Um, but of course, you'll notice um, 
Yeah, good. Exactly. Sean, uh, Sean Hyde, Sean Smith, and Neil Ottenstein were all making that connection at exactly the same time. Exactly. Exactly. Notice what's happening here, though? Now the shoe's on the other foot, right? We have these non-children, right, the kids at battle school, who are being used as tools by humanity, or by humanity as represented in the person of Colonel Graf and their other teachers, right? Here, we have the non-children who are going to use the whole rest of the world as their tool, right? We've got if it's indivi- if it's the indivi- if it's the individual versus humanity, we have humanity wants to use you, Ender, right? You must become a tool to serve humanity. Peter Wigan is the individual who's going to make all of humanity into his tool in order to accomplish his ends. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, uh, Look at Peter's plan. But Peter didn't know that he had already won, that is, uh, in convincing Valentine to help him. If I believe that, if I accept that, then I've got to sit back and watch while all the opportunities vanish, and, and, and then when I'm old enough, it's too late. That is, if I believe that, it's, that I can't affect anything because I'm only 12. Val, listen to me. I know how you feel about me. You always have. I was a vicious, nasty brother. I was cruel to you and crueler to Ender before they took him. But I didn't hate you. I loved you both. I just had to be... had to have control. Do you understand that? It's the most important thing to me. It's my greatest gift. I can see where the weak points are. I can see how to get in and use them. I just see those things, even without trying. I could become a businessman and run some big corporation. I'd scramble and maneuver until I was at the top of everything, and what would I have? Nothing. I'm going to rule, Val. I'm going to have control of something. But I want it to be something worth ruling. I want to accomplish something worthwhile. A Pax Americana through the whole world. So that when somebody else comes after we beat the buggers, when somebody else comes here to defeat us, they'll find we've already spread over a thousand worlds. We're at peace with ourselves and impossible to destroy. Do you understand? I want to save mankind from self-destruction. He's not offering himself as a tool to save mankind, like Ender's supposed to, right? No, he's going to be wielding the tool. Again, the whole of humanity is going to be his tool. He's the one in control. He's the one wielding the tool for their own good, right? Yeah, I'll save humanity. Ender can save it in one way. I'm going to save humanity in another way, right? Peter Wigan has has an alternate plan. He's going to make humanity into his tool. For its own good. He's got a benevolent plan. He wants to be something worth ruling. Notice the argument that he's making. I'm not just being selfish. It's not just about me. Yeah, I want to be in control, right? I want to have absolute power over things. What's so wrong with that? After all, what I want is good. I mean, if I, I could just be unscrupulous. If I just wanted my own personal power, if I just wanted to aggrandize myself, I could do that. I'd go into business. I'd get rich, right? Have as so much power and wealth as I want. Hans, as Hans Rose points out, Peter wants to prevent the civil wars that Dink saw. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, exactly. Peter Wigan, what a guy, right? I mean, he's a real humanitarian. He's got the best interests of humankind at heart, right? Now, obviously, uh, I'm asking that in a deliberately provocative way. Um, 
But this passage, you know, this this whole section is really interesting uh, because remember when Ender was a mouse confronting a giant, he killed it, right? He drills in through its eye, and then afterwards says, Peter would be pleased, right? Um, Even when I play, I'm a killer, just like Peter. Um, In a sense, he is being like Peter, um, but in a couple different ways. And there are two different things that I want to kind of tease out here. Um, It's easy when we look at Peter Wiggin to focus on, in fact, before this last reading, I'd never focused on anything other than Peter's obvious monstrosity. He is cruel. He is horrible. Um, You know, when Kraft asks, do you think he's the worst person in the entire world? And Valentine's like, how can I say whether he's the worst person? But he's the worst person I know, right? Um, uh, Anyway, he's awful. Really awful. Uh, and we see how manipulative he is. We are. We have absolutely, as Valentine does, has e- have every reason in the world to hear him say this and disbelieve it. Right? Um, this isn't true. This isn't what he wants. This is just how he gets what he wants, which is power. Over- he wants people to fear him. He is a killer. He is a murderer in his heart. Right, that's how Peter's been described by Ender and uh, and by Valentine from the beginning. Right, this is just a ploy. He's just wanting to make Valentine his tool, which he does. Yes, maybe. Let's see what happens with Peter actually when we get to the end. But um, so we have sort of the jury's still out. We haven't uh, we haven't yet seen what comes of it fully yet by this point in the story. But the thing that I wanted to sort of tease out, as I said, uh, it's not, and I'm not saying that we overlook Peter's monstrosity, because that's obviously an enormously prominent part of his character. However, he is also parallel to Ender. That is, both of them are individuals. Both of them are set apart from the rest of humanity. Both of them are special. Remember that language again from the last class, you know, in the early chapters when Graf is talking about those individuals of genius, right, that, uh, that, that, that humanity brings forth, those individuals of genius that are necessary in order to accomplish great things for humanity and to move you know, humanity forward. Ender is one, but Peter is one, too. Peter is as smart as Ender, but just more vicious, we're told. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, so anyway, so one of the, one of the things that we have here is not just the monstrous, horrible, unscrupulous person trying to get power for himself, but also the individual relating to humanity. And as I was suggesting in Peter, we see the individual and humanity related in exactly the opposite way that we see the individual and humanity related in Ender's case. Peter is not a tool. He's not going to be used. He is the user, not the usee. He's going to make all of humanity into his tool, and that's what he is. he's going to manipulate people, all of people, the masses of people, and until everyone in the world, until he is hegemon, and everyone in the world does what he wants them to do, um, humanity as a whole. Um, Peter's, in one sense, 
Peter's monstrosity is his radical nonconformity. He refuses to accept these boundaries. Valentine says, you're just a kid. You can't take over the world as a 12-year-old. Peter says, forget about that, right? I'm not going to be restricted by these boundaries. I'm not going to play society's game. I'm not going to play along with the rules that humanity has set down, just like Ender, right? Whether it means kicking over the glasses that the giant puts in front of him, or whether it means kicking Stilson in the face when he's down, right? Ender is not going to, and Peter is not going to conform to the framework that's to the given parameters that are established. Peter is the individual not submitting as a tool, but turning on the collective, on humanity as a whole. Um, he's the mouse who's not going to take either drink. Does that mean being a monster? Yeah, apparently it does. Um, the mouse, the ender mouse, goes through the giant's eye, kills it in this gruesome way. Um, Peter is the individual who's turned the tables. But that's associated, seems almost inescapably associated with monstrosity. Not just nonconformity, but monstrosity. With violence. With the breaking of taboos. Again, like not just breaking the rules of the game, but crossing those lines like Ender crossed with Stilson. Peter does the same thing, but he does it much, much more. Um, so back to the end of the world. And I, and I, I, I'm glad several people, by the way, have been pointing out um, Peter, of course, is, you know, whether or not he's telling the truth about this is what he wants, you know, whether he's being perfectly honest about his desires, um, he's perfectly right um, that uh, preventing the wars would be a good thing, a good thing for humanity, but of course also a good thing for him. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Peter certainly sees what Dink sees and more. Anyway, back to the end of the world. This is the last time Ender goes back there. This is right after the passage we were looking at just a few minutes ago when he says, in the game, I'm not going to play the game anymore. Right. The snake began to unweave itself from the rug again. Only this time, Ender did not hesitate. He stepped on the head... Oh, sorry, this is not that last time. This is earlier on. My apologies. The first time he gets there. Um, I wanted to contrast the two. Can we come again? So this is when he first arrives. Um, the second time. Okay, okay, okay. This is the second time he arrives. Remember the first time he just gets there and the snake says, I'm the only escape, I'm deaf. And then the message comes up that he has to get to Salamander Army because he's late, so he stops and never does anything. This is the second time he gets there. When he actually... this is So, so it's the second time he gets there, but it's the first time he ever attempts to get past this room. Okay. Now, now I'm square with what on earth I'm talking about. The snake began to unweave itself from the rug again, only this time Ender did not hesitate. He stepped on the head of the snake and crushed it under his foot. It writhed and twisted under him, and in response he twisted, the, twisted and ground it deeper into the stone floor. Finally it was still. Ender picked it up and shook it, until it unwove itself and the pattern in the rug was gone. Then, still dragging the snake behind him, he began to look for a way out. Instead he found a mirror. And in the mirror, he saw a face that he easily recognized. It was Peter, with blood dripping down his chin and a snake's tail protruding from a corner of his mouth. 
Ender shouted and thrust his desk from him. The few boys in the barracks were alarmed at the noise, but he apologized and told them it was nothing. They went away. He looked again into his desk. His figure was still there, staring into the mirror. He tried to pick up some of the furniture to break the mirror, but it could not be moved. The mirror would not come off the wall, either. Finally, Ender threw the snake at it. The mirror shattered, leaving a hole in the wall behind it. Out of the hole came dozens of tiny snakes, which quickly bit Ender's figure again and again, tearing the snakes frantically from itself. The figure collapsed and died in a writhing heap of small serpents. Remember, when he first met the snake, the snake said, I am the only escape. I am death. Right? Um, so what does he do? He kills it. Oh, Sean, I love that. That's wonderful, Sean. Sean Smith has a wonderful theory. Um, the snake says death is the only way out. And then the message, the message shows up to say that Ender is late. Uh, Sean says, as in the late Ender Wigan. I love that. I love that. Uh, that's. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that play is intended, but I, I, I think it's hilarious. If it's not intended, I would wish it were. Um, but um, anyway, so the snake is associated with death, um, and he kills the snake. Peter is eating the snake in the mirror, right? So he looks in the mirror and he sees Peter, and he sees Peter in the middle of what looks like a horrific act, Peter having eaten, having swallowed a snake, Peter with blood dripping down his chin. Um, and so what does Ender do? He takes the snake and he throws it away from himself at Peter, seeming to distance himself. I'm not going to do what Peter did. I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to eat this snake. I'm not going to become that image in the mirror. I'm going to throw that away from myself, right? So he wants to distance himself from Peter. Um, but he just he just killed the snake. It's a dead snake that he's throwing at Peter. Um, his first reaction is to kill it the snake, and that leads to his being killed um, by snakes. Ed is teasing me for making 17 slides. I'm not even done yet, man! I'm going to make it. Now that I've gotten through 17, I'll tell you, I have 21 slides tonight, uh, and and you would have laughed me to scorn had I told you that uh, at the beginning of class. Um, Sharon Hoff asks, are we to make a, uh, a connection between the serpent and Satan? It's hard, Sharon, because on the one hand, the connection seems almost inescapable. I mean, the grinding its head under his heel thing, I, that's like explicitly a Genesis 3 reference. You know, that, uh, you know, I shall put enmity between the, the, you know, between thy seed and his seed, you know, and you shall bruise his head and he shall bruise your heel. Um, you know, the stomping on the head of the snake thing um, m- makes the serpent sound like Satan and makes Ender seem like a messiah, which also kind of works. So, so Sharon, on the one hand, I find that connection... Um, yeah, Tom, is, Tom Hillman also... Point, you know, we, we get sort of the link between knowledge and death also. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, yes. On the one hand, that seems to me... I, I, I can't not think of that. But on the other hand... I don't know where to go with it exactly, and I'm a little hesitant. Um, and the reason I'm hesitant is that maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see 
the justification. It doesn't feel right. I mean, how, how squishy does that sound, right? What I mean by that, I go back to what I was saying about the giant's drink at the beginning, and when I was trying to explain why with the end of the world, why I felt that, you know, felt confident in doing these kinds of interpretations, of, of trying to do readings to say, you know, what is the meaning, um, to be doing something almost like, at least, an, a, a, if not explicitly, an allegorical unpacking of what we're seeing going on here in the mind game. And I was saying that I feel justified in doing that because the story itself insists on it. We have the characters in the story, first Ender and then the teachers, doing this again and again, insisting on this interpretation, insisting that there is a meaning, that it does have meaning, and they are trying to figure it out, and I think we are invited or even encouraged to try to figure it out, too. That fact, that trend within the story, gives... uh, makes me feel very confident in doing this kind of reading of this of this passage. But the Bible stuff, Sharon, I feel less confident with it because the rest of the story doesn't seem to me to bear it out. Um, it's isolated. That one moment... I mean, Sharon, I, I, I get, again, I, I, I want to keep emphasizing um, that uh, that is something that I, I, I can't escape that when I hear that passage. Um, and you're right, you know, uh, Sharon went on to add that, you know, the religion thing is an issue at the beginning, though, you know, we'll hold them with, a, you know, his dad being Catholic and her mom, his mom being Mormon. Um, the significance of religion, yeah, but again, specific biblical allegories and parallels, I don't see it in any other than a than a really kind of a forced way. It, see, it feels forced to me. Um, if I make the step, if I take that step, Sharon, and say, okay, all right, snakes, the snake equals Satan, or at least we're supposed to be remembering the serpent in the garden. We're supposed to be remembering Genesis chapter 3. I feel like it's a, I, I feel like I'm on a dead-end street. I don't see where it goes. It doesn't, just as, you know, again, to take the other example that I was doing earlier, when we look at the wolf children scene, right? And I look at that, and then I, 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 I move out from that to the rest of the book, and immediately I'm like, oh yeah, look at that. You know, it connects with this, it connects with that. It, it, it's, it's an idea. And this is really how I evaluate readings. If you, if you do a reading of a passage, if you think of, if, if you sort of understand it working in this one particular way, and understanding it in that way helps to open up many things in the rest of the story, helps to draw your attention to other things and establish connections that you didn't see before, that's kind of the definition to me of a reading that works. But Sharon, I don't have that feeling here. Again, though, as I say, I agree, um, and I can't divorce that that image from the Genesis three passage. I it doesn't it feels like a dead end to me. I don't get that same experience of this um, uh, of this connecting in other places. Carolyn says, you know, the uh, it, it, snake is a symbol for life and rebirth in other religions and mythologies. Yes, that's true, Carolyn. But it's specifically the image that Sharon is pointing to there, um, which uh, the, the image of crushing the head of a serpent under the heel. That's why I'm going to Genesis chapter three again. It's not just the general 
snakes and snakes make me think of Genesis and so I'm thinking we're in the Old Testament. It's that very concrete, very specific image of the crushing of the head of a serpent under the heel of a Messiah figure. That's uh, that's a very particular reference. That's why I'm talking about a, a specifically biblical reference, a specifically Old Testament um, reference for that. I, But again, I, I don't... Um, you know, is that, you know, Sharon suggests uh, maybe it's a, a clumsy attempt on Card's part, possibly. Maybe there was an intention on his, you know, we talked about intention and meaning before. Maybe he was intending something and it didn't work, you know, and his intention failed there. That's possible. Um, maybe he was trying to draw a more sort of biblical analogy there and it just doesn't work in the story, maybe. But I, but that's kind of where I end up, that if I try to go there, I find it doesn't work. Um but uh, anyway, uh, Tommy McGuire says that uh, uh, my definition of a reading that works is uh, the definition of a good math or scientific theorem, too. Yeah, Tommy, I've always found those things as being very consistent. I find I was a double major in astrophysics and English as an undergraduate, and I always found that the kind of thinking that you do certainly, you know, at, at, when you go beyond the introductory level in science, you know, beyond the, I've got to memorize a bunch of formulas stage of learning science, um, the kind of analysis, the kind of thought, the kind of creativity required in scientific uh, analysis of data and in, hypoth- in the forming of hypotheses and the, the fitting of hypothesis to data is very like the kind once you get past the uh, you know uh, sort of often sort of crude introductory attempts uh, um, to you know again when you're in an English class just sort of accepting parameters um, you know just sort of being accepted like okay this is what I am being told that this is the meaning of this book okay that is the meaning I will try to remember that is the meaning of the, again if you, when you get past that I, I always found those two things very closely connected um, uh, so it's, I'm really interested to hear you say that Tommy um, okay um, okay let's see um Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Tommy sa- Tommy adds, uh, he says, an answer that doesn't raise more questions is just an answer. Um, one that does is a potential dissertation or research career. Yeah, I get just it's an interpretation which opens up new ways of thinking about an entire text, which really invites you to see many things from a new point of, you know, from a new point of view. From uh, you know to 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 grant the entire story a new dimension of richness that you hadn't seen before. Yeah. Again, to me, that's that's what uh, that's what makes a really good reading. You know, that's that's what. And again, um, I said at the very beginning that I felt that Ender's Game was really sort of standing up to analysis, even better than I expected it to. And I've been really surprised and delighted by it. Again, that's in my mind the definition of a great work of literature. Uh, something that when you know you do, the, it, it it doesn't always happen. You know, sometimes. Um, Sometimes the the closer you look at something, the sort of flatter it looks. That happens sometimes. Um, that certainly hasn't been my experience here this time. Um, uh, let me... Uh, 
see. I'm going to keep going. Uh, experienced Mythgard students will recognize my trying to decide whether to stop or go on face that I was just making there. Let's go on. Um, here's Ender after this moment. Ender didn't go back to the fantasy game, but it lived in his dreams. He kept remembering how it felt to kill the snake, grinding it in, the way he tore the ear off that boy, the way he destroyed Stilson, the way he broke Bernard's arm, and then to stand up, holding the corpse of his enemy, and find Peter's face, looking at him from the mirror. This game knows too much about me. This game tells filthy lies. I am not Peter. I don't have murder in my heart. And then a worse fear that he was a killer, only better at it than Peter ever was, that it was this very trait that pleased the teachers. It's killers they need for the bugger wars. It's people who can grind the enemy's face into the dust and spatter their blood all over space. Well, I'm your man. I'm the bloody bastard you wanted when you had me spawned. I'm your tool. And what difference does it make if I hate the part of me that you most need? What difference does it make that when the little serpents killed me in the game, I agreed with them? and was glad. You see the irony, though? I mean, on the one hand, we can understand this, and we can see that, you know, we can understand the terms, we can see how his... They are, in fact, making... That is, in fact, precisely the tool that they need, right? And he sees them shaping him in this way. He doesn't want to identify himself with that, but then, at the same time, he's sort of embracing it. But he's not justifying it, right? He's saying, okay, I'm your man. I'm going to be your tool. I will grind the heads of snakes into the ground. Notice, Sharon, he's feeling bad about this. This is why I can't get it. I can't go there. Like serpent as Satan thing, like you know, be like, oh poor Satan, I feel really bad about myself. That's just it doesn't work anyway. Leaving it behind, but this is a perfect illustration of what uh, of one of those dead ends that I felt like I butted up against there. Uh, anyhow, um, he he accepts it, he submits to being the tool, though he hates it and hates himself for doing it. But again, notice the irony. Fine, I'll be Peter. I'll be Peter, but I'll be better at it than Peter, right? But no, he's not like Peter, because Peter is not a tool. Peter Peter is the user of the tool, not a tool, right? He is, in submitting to being like Peter, he's making himself unlike Peter, in fact, in this other way. Again, there is that monstrosity. He's becoming a monster, like Peter. He is, uh, if not enjoying the pain of others... Uh, at least becoming more and more adept and willing to inflict it, right? Um, but anyway, in, 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 in a different way, in a way which seems to me even more fundamental, he's being unlike Peter. Um, notice that he's again emulating humanity. Um, the choice that humanity is going to make. Humanity wants a tool like this, right? Humanity itself as a whole, by the fact that it is asking for a tool to do what it is asking Ender to do, um, by that fact, it se- humanity as a whole seems to be embracing being like Peter, right? That, in fact, Peter is not a deviant. He's not a monster. He's humanity, right? This is what humanity wants. This is what humanity has chosen. Um, but again, Peter breaks the norms. Peter is not, in fact, like the rest of humanity. Um, Look at Valentine's point of view. 
Graf, speaking with her, asks, Why are you crying? She shook her head. She couldn't explain what it was like to think of her little brother, who was so good, whom she had protected for so long, and then remember that she was now Peter's ally, Peter's helper, Peter's slave, Peter's tool, in a scheme that was completely out of her control. Ender never surrendered to Peter, but I have turned. I've become part of him as Ender never was. Ender never gave in, she said. To what? To Peter. To being like Peter. They walked in silence along the goal line. Um, but in that passage, what's exactly what we saw Ender doing? Giving in. Fine, I'll be your tool. Right? I'll mash the heads of snakes. Fine, fine. That's what I'll do. How would Ender ever be like Peter? Valentine shuddered. I already told you. But Ender never did that kind of thing. He was just a little boy. We both wanted to, though. We both wanted to. To kill Peter. Ah. No, that isn't true. We never said it. Ender never said that he wanted to do that. I just thought it. It was me, not Ender. He never said that he wanted to kill him. What did he want? He just didn't want to be... And Ender did, er, Valentine never finishes that sentence. Didn't want to be like Peter? Didn't want to be a monster? Um, um, Hans has an interesting perspective. By denying the part of himself that is like Peter, Hans says, he opens himself to destruction by the serpents. The image, the Peter image in the mirror is holding back all the little serpents. And Peter's eating one, right? He's eating the serpent. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, remember see how she maps this onto killing Peter right we wanted to rebel Peter was violent Peter was a monster we didn't want to be monsters we wanted to be children we just wanted to live we just wanted him to leave us alone right they just wanted to be kids but Peter was a wolf so what do they do how can they escape well, they could always go through his eye, I guess, right? They can destroy violence by violence. Um, can you avoid the giant's trap without killing the giant? How do you break out of this system? Um, she's become Peter's tool. Ender never gave in, but he is giving in. Ender is willing to become like Peter, but hates becoming like Peter, except in doing so, he is being the opposite of Peter. Um, it's, uh... It's all very complicated, isn't it? Sharon Powell points out, Ender is not like Peter because Peter enjoyed inflicting pain. Ender doesn't enjoy it. That's true. Um, that does seem to be the fundamental difference, the difference that, that Graf seems to perceive from the beginning. It's why they took Ender and not Peter, 
right? Um, because they were obviously uncomfortable with that element of Peter's character. That's again, that's that sort of the other side. You know, I was looking at Peter as the individual who is using humanity as a tool, um, but he's also a monster. Um, and not only monstrous in some kind of abstract way, in the sense of like, you know, that any individual who puts himself, uh, who separates himself from humanity in that way and is willing to use all of humanity as the tool for his own ends and desires to control everyone, you can say that, you know, no matter what his personality is like, that that's monstrous. Well, monstrous in the sense of being different, being separate from sort of drawing, dehumanizing himself, right? Um, But he's also monstrous in a much more I almost said normal way, recognizable way, right? In the, like, I like to torture small animals kind of way. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, let's look at how all this comes together to some extent um, in the, at the, at the end of the world. Um, Sean Smith was reminding me that uh, I had promised that we would compare the two, so I do need to at least get there. As always, the serpent waited in the tower room, unraveling itself from the rug on the floor. But this time Ender didn't grind it underfoot. This time he caught it in his hands, knelt before it, and gently, so gently, brought the snake's gaping mouth to his lips and kissed. He had not meant to do that. He had meant to let the snake bite him on the mouth, Or perhaps he had meant to eat the snake alive, as Peter in the mirror had done, with his bloody chin and the snake's tail dangling from his lips. But he kissed it instead. And the snake in his hands thickened and bent into another shape, a human shape. It was Valentine, and she kissed him again. The snake could not be Valentine. He had killed it too often for it to be his sister. Peter had devoured it too often for Ender to bear it that it might have been Valentine all along. Was this what they planned when they let him read her letter? He didn't care. This time, when he confronts the serpent, who is death, which is the only escape, according to the serpent, right? Um, He meets it not with violence, but with acceptance. He embraces the serpent. He kisses it, right? Is he giving in now? Ender never gave in. He never gave in to being like Peter. Note, it's not the same. Uh, he's not doing the same thing to the Peter ate the snake. He's kissing it, right? He's different from Peter. Um, it's also not the same thing as giving in to being Peter, right? It's, it's, it's not giving in to Peter himself either. Um, does the snake equal Valentine? She turns into... It turns into Valentine, right? Um... We think about Valentine's letter, right? She is a tool. She submits herself to be a tool. She does give in to Peter, yeah, but worse to the teachers, to Graf, right? She, and she hates herself for being a tool, like Ender, right? I sold my brother and have been paid, she says. Um, she had been life, the one living good memory that he had, but now she's death, is 
has a serpent turned into Valentine, or has Valentine turned into a serpent? Who's giving into whom here? Um, well, let's look at the end. She arose from the floor of the tower room and walked to the mirror. Ender made his figure also rise and go with her. They stood before the mirror, where instead of Peter's cruel reflection, there stood a dragon and a unicorn. Ender reached out his hand and touched the mirror, and so did Valentine. The wall fell open and revealed a great stairway downward, carpeted and lined with shouting, cheering multitudes. Together, arm in arm, he and Valentine walked down the stairs. Tears filled his eyes, tears of relief that at last he had broken free of the room at the end of the world, and because of the tears he didn't notice that every member of the multitude wore Peter's face. He only knew that wherever he went in this world, Valentine was with him. We have this royal fantasy welcome. I'm assuming he's the dragon and she's the unicorn. It seems like a not coincidence that he's going to become the commander of Dragon Army immediately after this, right? Um, uh... Unicorns associated with innocence, uh, with innocence and virginity, right? Uh, you know, thinking of uh, Valentine's insistence upon his innocence and the way that she seems to be representing that kind of purity com- con- contrasted with Peter. But he's moving out past the end of the world into a new world where all of humanity wears Peter's face. Well, I think we're done here. <laughs> There's a lot more to say here. Um, but I'm way over time now. So I'm going to let you guys go, uh, having gotten to this passage and, and, and really sort of thought through not yet final conclusions about this passage in the end of the world and what's going on here. But at the same time, I think that's okay. Because I don't think we're in a position to make final conclusions yet. We're only halfway through the book, right? So let's keep asking these questions. Let's keep looking at these things. Let's keep following these themes. This, you know, the 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 this this co- this complicated relationship that we're getting um, with between Ender. This complicated parallel between Ender and Peter, um, and their relationship with humanity being a tool or using tools. Um, the issue of monstrosity and becoming a monster. Do you have to become a monster in order to uh, to 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 um, you know, does 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 doing this become a tool, or make you into a tool? Uh, no, wait. Does becoming a tool make you into a monster? That's what I was trying to say. Can't even speak sentences anymore. Um, hang on, again. We're, we're not at the end of the book. Let's watch what happens next. Keep thinking about these things as we move forward. Um, but don't let me weave this. I don't let me wimp out entirely on this passage. I want to make sure we come back to this. I think it will become a little bit clearer in retrospect. We can try to see how it fits in with what goes on to happen um, in the next part. Also, don't forget, as I don't think it's a coincidence, the connection between dragons and serpents is uh, is, is pretty close. Um, they're not identical. You know, um, dragon army isn't necessarily a synonym for snake army, but they're very closely related. Um, so it seems to me kind of interesting that it is at this point that he is now going to be identified 
um, with dragons, uh, with the dragon army. Um, we'll, uh, uh, we'll see. We'll see how that works out. Anyway, thank you very much. You guys have been awesome tonight. You've asked great questions and, and uh, made some really wonderful comments. I've really enjoyed our discussion here tonight. Um, uh, thank you for your patience in uh, uh, enduring especially long class here tonight. Uh, yeah, we are, we've officially gone over two hours now, um, so thanks for that. I look forward to uh, uh, looking at his time as a commander next time in battle school and see how these uh, how these relationships and parallels develop as we move forward. I am uh, very much looking forward to what we continue to see. So thanks. Look forward to joining you again next week, and I hope you will uh, be with me Tuesday night next week, same time. Thanks very much, everybody. Good night.